Hello, my cute little pixie fairy libertarians. I'm broadcasting from Morelia, Mexico, where I'm at an event called The Greater Reset, organized by the great agorist thinkers, Derek Bros and John Bush. I have to say it's drawn an absolutely phenomenal crowd. I've made some awesome friends here. While I'm living it up, please enjoy my recent appearance on the Six Sense Report, hosted by Joel Nikolov, Darnell Samuels. We talk about a whole bunch of stuff, including the fact that governments enact patchwork policies where they slap one thing on top of another, on top of another. We talk about defining poverty. We get into some of my views on why I disagree with psychiatry and a whole bunch of other interesting topics. Hope you enjoy episode 201 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Or Anthony's title on his website is A Life Wizard. And is it? You know, <laughs> I, could, I could go into more detail, but I figured uh, I'd let you sort of give a background. I'll say that I've found you from you know, listening to Tom Wood's show and, and heard you on a number of podcasts and following you for a number of years. So I'm, I'm grateful that you're on our show and, and you know, going to hopefully impute some knowledge and wisdom to our audience. Um, but why don't you uh, help our audience understand you know, who you are, where you're at today, and, and you know, where did this book come from? All right. Okay. First of all, the life wizard thing. Um, <laughs> I I put out um, a couple of self help books some years ago, just before I put this one out, actually. And um, on my card, on my professional services card, it, under my name, it said Anthony Samroff Wizards. And the reason why was, you know, people don't really like these uh, terms, myself included, like therapist coach, life coach, counsellor, and I thought, well, wizards, you know, empower heroes. For every Luke Skywalker, there's a Gandalf, and, mm. uh, sorry, mm. That's uh, what is it, Obi-Wan Kenobi, I think Obi-Wan Kenobi was based on Gandalf, who <laughs> empowers uh, Bilbo Baggins Luke and Frodo, Sky. and of course, you know, Morpheo, Morpheus, Neo, that's their, that's if they got married, I guess, they're the mat in front of their door so when it says life wizard it's, it's uh, less pretentious than it sounds maybe um it was the publicist that i had that was trying to get me on the radio and stuff like that and um, put it put life wizard on press releases uh, i found it a little bit cringy personally but uh, that's why i felt the need to explain it um anyway i mean i like it i think i think there's a you know a cheekiness to it or but like you said it's it's getting away from the traditional term, so. I feel like just wizard is good. Mm-hmm. Wizard is good. I, 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 think I, I think I am rather magical at times. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, so my profession is um, counsellor, and I also do coaching um, to help people make money online or with relationships and things like that. Um, and sort of libertarianism started writing or podcasting was really writing first it was really just started as a hobby i guess because i thought maybe pretentiously that certain ideas could be articulated better than they were being articulated you know this is before there was like hundreds of libertarian podcasts so 
I wasn't really thinking. I, I saw a gap, basically, that I could comfortably s squeeze into, but it's kind of become a second job with the book and sometimes getting asked to speak at events and things like that. So it's still a hobby, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I studied economics for 10, 12 years, like just on the side as of being a therapist. Just, I, I found it endlessly interesting and fascinating. And so I, was, I wasn't just... I felt like I was collecting fragments of ideas from here, there, and everywhere and sort of weaving them together. And I didn't like when people weren't comprehensive on an issue. You know, if you see a article on the minimum wage or something like that, and it said, well, it's going to lower, lower employment. Okay, we've heard that a million times, but it's not going to convince the person that's reading it. Mm -hmm. What about their counter arguments? Can you, you know, can you address those in the text? Which brings us to the book, Universal Basic Income For and Against, which as far as I know is the only comprehensive treatment of the universal basic income idea. There's a bunch of books in favour of it. I tried to include as many arguments in favour of it as I could. In fact, I even revised the book, adding more in later on. Uh, and then like, an assessment of these arguments and what the knock-on consequences are going to be. It doesn't just cover the UBI, it also talks about other policies that, other approaches to reducing poverty that I would think is quite effective. I mean, it started basically with a presentation. I was asked to present at a event in Scotland where they were having a hard time finding a speaker that would make an argument against the UBI. So I structured it going, here are the best arguments I can think of in favor of it, then here are the arguments a bit against it and a little bit of analysis. And then I wanted to not just say, oh, well, that's, you know, you can't beat something with nothing. So it was really important to me, even in that presentation to say, well, here's some alternative things that we could do, which would improve the living standards of people at the bottom of the economic ladder, um, you know, as a so so it kind of has those three parts, but it's got other parts in it as well, um, that were added on, and I went I started it as a side project while I was working on other stuff, and I just um took the material and kept on expanding on it and expanding on it, and uh, when the other project was finished, it became my primary project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really, uh, I think it is probably one of the few uh, comprehensive um, books on the topic. I think you, you know, you spend a, a number of pages sort of giving, I think, a fairly, you know, unbiased perspective, present, presentation of both sides, um, you know, the for and against. And I think, um, you know, your conclusion, or sorry, the, uh, yeah, the conclusion of, of your book, I think, is something that obviously, you know, I don't want to necessarily spoil it, but those, you know, your the, the caveat is, you know, you spend that time discussing the alternatives, the complementary solutions, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I sort of summarize like five different things that you speak on, which is, you know, price inflation, taxes, housing costs, cheaper stuff via regulation consequence and, and whatnot, and then free trade. Um, and the conclusion you, you that I sort of pulled that the one liner is like, without addressing the above issues, the concern would be that UBI may be a bandage to these problems. Um, and, right. and I know that's sort of a conclusion, but the reason I wanted to, to highlight that is that I really appreciate you know, the part of this book that you walk through all those five issues thoroughly, because I've always been saying you know, things like minimum wage and things like 
UBI, a lot of it is a poor diagnosis of the cause and effect relationships that lead to all of those UBI arguments. Um, That's correct. That's very well put. And and so would you say that, you know, many of those UBI arguments are relatively valid concerns, um, but that there's a failure to identify the cause? Well, I mean, what's your, it, it would be on an argument by argument basis. So could you, you start with what you think some of those concerns are? Uh, well, I mean, I would like I, I as I went through all of your list, like I never went through mm-hmm. any of them and thought, oh, this is a you know, this is wrong or incorrect, or these people don't have a, a like the the people that would be promoting these arguments. I I can understand the 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 presentation of them. Um, so you know whether it's, um, I mean, a lot of it, you know, the stuff that resonates with the the libertarians, um, is the one that I always use would be sort of. It's a the economics idea is like gift in kind versus gift in cash, hmm. um, you know. And so, giving somebody funds as opposed to items is generally going to lead to you know more utility. Now, that's an oversimplification of the economic principle, but then this plays out. This is where you know things like welfare cliff and all. I I see those as sort of derivatives of the fact that, um, you know, we're we're not applying that gift in kind, gift in cash sort of economic principles to this issue. And just for you know completeness, I understand that the the caveat for that is that well we don't want you know someone spending money on drugs and alcohol instead of their basic needs. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, so so you'd probably want to be a little bit more specific because when you say that I, I know what you mean when you say the gift in kind uh, thing, but what what you mean is people are being given benefits in forms other than money and those will get taken away from them is that what you're saying if they earn more if they increase their income they'll get welfare benefits taken away from them like say for example um complimentary dentist benefits or dentist visits or something like that is that what you mean um well i mean it's it's there's two parts of it so one part is that you know, the programs would be more efficient, which is where, you know, that's one of the arguments I find very, very uh, compelling in terms of, you know, as an alternative to the current method of doing welfare programs, they're very burdensome on administration to ensure people qualify. And so there's a, a high cost burden. But then the second part of that is that I think, you know, you use the word really well with regards to benefits. The Some of the other problem with these programs is that they give benefits, whether or not that benefit is is of value to the recipient. Right, and and so um, I I was sort of using, I I was saying I think that you know economic principle that people are generally better off when they have the ability to determine where those resources that are helping them are allocated. I see that as a, sort of an overriding economic principle that can be applied right. to so many things within UBI welfare conversation. Could you give just for the listeners a couple of yeah. examples of things that they might be giving be given benefits that are not of value to them? Uh I mean my first I know that the, the first thought of to give the example, um, not that it's not something they don't receive benefit of, but um let's say a degraded benefit would be uh food stamps. Maybe it mm-hmm. limits the stores they can shop mm-hmm. at. Because mm-hmm. they want to buy food of a different kind or a different ethnicity, and that store doesn't accept food stamps. Mm. 
right? So it's a degradation potentially to the mm. the good or the benefit they're receiving because they would have a chosen to apply the benefit in a slightly different manner. Right. And of course, the argument from an inverted commas society, whatever the hell that means, is, well, you know, it's not their money they're receiving, and we want to make sure that they spend it on something that we think is good for them rather than something that we think is bad for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there, there are sort of the rationales behind the welfare programs, the welfare state. Um, that that and that's the same. You know, you apply the same logic as to we want to make sure they don't spend it on drugs and alcohol. We want to make right. sure they spend it on their on their basic needs. Being yeah, and I mean, if they're that desperate, they'll just sell the food stamps and get the drugs and alcohol. Anyway, but I yep. I think that's you 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 mentioned something like there's various rationales between uh, behind you know these choices and welfare and things like that. But I think people. We, we, as in the three of us and many of the listeners, being so as enlightened as they are, may know this. But I think the man on the street often thinks in terms of there being a rationale behind decisions made. But usually it's just like a lot of inertia and things going in weird directions because of the incentives of stakeholders who may or may not lobby and eh, mm. also different ideas uh, a battle of ideologies where like no one no one plan is being set in motion like let's take i don't know like criminal justice or something like that you'll have some people in there who think that the the purpose is rehabilitation and you mm -hmm. have some people who think the purpose is punishment and what you end up is getting a mix of both uh, well, I mean, probably there's zero rehabilitation going on. But what what they do do is, oh, they give the prisoners a television and a pool table and things like that, and everyone mm -hmm. then thinks that the so they're not getting rehabilitated, and it's not that bad a punishment. You know, I don't know if this is what actually happens. I'm just using it as an abstract yeah. example so people mm -hmm. can understand the principle. I'm not an expert on what happens in the jails, but that happens all over the political system including welfare so you have one administration that comes in that thinks right we're gonna we're gonna have a real tough line in these benefit scroungers and make it difficult for them and then and another administration or administrator or regulator who's or a group of regulators who are bleeding hard and think oh you know people shouldn't ever have to um suffer poverty so we should be generous and it's a patchwork of lots of different people's ideas and the problem with that is you know if you want if you've if you've got a ship um you know in the pacific one wants to go to canada one wants to go to asia you you end up getting nowhere do you know what i mean you you, you right. go to neither and mm -hmm. uh, and you waste a lot of energy and resources and things like that on the way. So maybe that's partly what's happened with the benefit system because a lot of the time when government, when it comes to government, things just get added on top of things and then something gets slapped on top of that and then something gets slapped on top of that. No one ever goes, right, well, you know, we're just going to take a wrecking ball to this and just <laughs> smash it down. We're going to replace all of it with something new that's coherent. Um, because, oh, no, I mean, you can't just, it's, it'll be chaos. I mean, everything's tied up to everything else. Like, I sometimes wonder, you know, what would happen if there was a revolution or um, uh, 
libertarian society or anarcho-capitalism or something like that to all the freaking lawyers and things like that who've learned all the or or whatever regulators or people or or people whose job it is to make sure that other businesses are complying with regulations at great expense by the way when everything in their head is null and void and someone's come up with a new set of laws like what you know Oh, everything you know about the regulations is now completely irrelevant because we've decided that the regulations are outdated, outmoded, and we've put a new system in place. I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's okay. <laughs> uh, I just just to be clear, uh, part of the issue or the heart behind universal basic income is um, alleviating alleviating poverty. People taking right. people out of poverty. Uh, how, how, how do you define poverty? How would you define it? How would I define it? Well, I mean, yeah, because a lot of times we use, we say, oh, this index or taking people out of poverty, but like, well, for those of us who live like, you know, in America or Australia or Canada, what does poverty actually mean? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're not in poverty the way that people in the Congo are in poverty or something like that. Um, but I mean, so yeah, I mean, sometimes you see these things where they say relative poverty, and what once I even saw a government report saying, even though incomes have increased, relative poverty has stayed has stayed <laughs> relatively stable or like the same. And I'm like, yeah, no shit, it stayed the same. It's a relative fucking measure. How do you expect <laughs> it not to stay the same when it's a relative measure? Yeah, it's like <sighs> 10% of the population does X. It's still going to be 10%, like, or, or right, like the bottom great, 10% threshold. Grading on a curve and in school, right? Where we, we grade the papers in terms of who's got the best papers to who's got the worst, right? That being said, we can make fun of that, like, and some libertarians do. I mean, like, uh, the co hosts of my podcast scottish liberty podcast he's the occasional co-host now uh, very occasional since i've been traveling <laughs> um used to say he on our podcast he want, he he grew up he spent a long time when he was growing up in south africa and he, he once said i'd love so one of these people who's going out on you know one of these politicians or something like that to go to a village in Africa where they're burying their fucking dead and tell them about all the fucking poverty in Scotland. Those were his expletives, not mine, by the way. Although mm-hmm. I am quite potty mouth. You can bleep them out if it's not that kind of show. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that being said, right, poverty has to be to some degree a mel- relative measure. I mean, like, if you didn't have electricity, in 1920 you know that's not really that much of remember when the internet came out and people needed to go to internet cafes to send their emails Mm -hmm. and these were successful for a while and you'll still find them in some cities like in india and places like that well where they'll have computers that've got xp on them windows xp on them Mm. right but i mean no one use if you don't have internet in your house you're like Oh, I'm in poverty, right? Well, I mean, you, you, it certainly feels that way when you move in somewhere new and you need to wait for the person to put it in. So, yeah, I mean, if you didn't have a fridge or a vacuum cleaner 
or a gas, well, you probably had a, a cooker of some variety, or all sorts of things that we take for granted mm. today. If you don't have electricity in your house, you're not considered in po- you're considered in poverty. Running water. It wasn't that long ago that lots of people's toilets were outside and they had to go outside to go to the toilet. Now everyone's got plumbing in their house. So you can't just say, well, oh, you know, per you, you don't have, uh, you know, you, you're living in a Western country and you don't have basic uh, boohoo, boo, boohoo, you know, go tell it to people <laughs> in Africa. Because it is somewhat relative. You know, mm-hmm. it's sensible to think about it that way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, because, uh, like, the way how I've usually defined poverty is uh, not being able to meet your basic needs. Mm. And then wealth would be um, being able to meet your more basic needs. And so, like, when when you hear the push for universal basic income, it's like, okay, look, we got we to gotta help those in need who are in poverty. And again, like, a lot of times we throw around words and we're not actually defining what does it actually mean, right? Like, right. yeah, you're right. Like, okay, yeah, the, the, yeah, it becomes relative where we throw around the term. We're like, oh, you know, these people are in poverty, but you're like, well, well, hold on. Like, what, what does that mean, right? So I think it's important to clarify, like, what, what is poverty? What is wealth? Because th- that's the ultimate goal mm-hmm. of, of what they're trying to do with UBI, I guess. Right. And, you know, it's funny as well, sometimes, like that old expression, some people are so poor that all they have is money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, the, uh, our income is not the only value of, we- you know, wealth or something like that. So in the USA, if you've got an income of under 13 grand, more or less, if you're one person, you're considered in poverty. And if you're a couple, it's like 17,500. That doesn't sound a lot to live on for a couple. But um, those are the guidelines. So, I don't know. Um, I guess the thing, the question, so one of the points I make very strongly in my book is there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? So. Let's take that 17 and a half grand for a couple. Okay, what would do them more good if we gave them another $2,500 or if the price of their shopping and, well, let's just say the price of everything came down by, damn it, arithmetic. Let's just say... Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I was going to give a percentage. Oh, right. Well, I can so, do math in my head quick. So, can you? Yeah. So, I don't know how much percent everything. Like, okay, Sarah, there. I don't know how much are the like this couple's paying one thousand two hundred in rent. Okay, let's say their rent comes down by twenty percent. That's like two hundred forty bucks. Yeah, a month, right? So that would do them about as much good or maybe more good if all the if all the shopping came down in the shop and now it's really bad with with inflation because of this covid insanity like i hear that groceries i've not been in the states for a few months now but i hear that groceries have gone up a lot like 
it's like when when and also it affects the decisions people make you know when you go into the produce aisle and like the fruits and vegetables are like ridiculous price you go well you know i'm just going to go and buy a ready meal mm. so people are getting less healthy and it's true i mean and again this is why you, we need to consider the relative you know relative in the past people spent like 80 percent of their income on food or something like mm-hmm. that if you were at the bottom of the economic ladder but we're not used to spending that much on food mm-hmm. um so we don't want to go back there and you know if we so when you when you see that the the basic building blocks of good health are increasingly expensive that's going to you know affect your health and then you know there's more spending for on healthcare later on down the line because you know you didn't eat well and you cooked in the shittiest cheapest oils uh, which are terrible for your health and and you know what have you on it goes so yeah one thing has a knock-on effect on everything the price the, the price of goods and services and i guess in the in the book i talk about how the government or regulations have been a corrupting factor in things like the housing market pushing price house prices the price of accommodation through the roof and also our our listeners the, can definitely uh, relate to that we're in toronto okay. which is like insane for housing costs oh yeah and can you do can you tell me a little bit about what the government if you know about the role that the government has played in that yeah i mean i would say so there's um you know the we essentially you had the 2008 financial crisis in the u.s i would argue um in canada started our uh housing bubble through you know cheap mortgages in 2011 hmm um, and whereas we didn't have the 2000 response that, that the U.S. had. So there's that factor. But then we also have, a, especially Toronto or GTA, um, the greater Toronto area, we've got a mass amount of immigration and a very slow, burdensome regulatory process getting new projects. So our supply of right. houses is, is you know, not keeping up even with the demand from increased people uh, in, right. in the region. And so that's th- those two factors. Um, align with you know a lot of what you've said in your book, not so much the the immigration factor, um, but and and right. I wanted to to really point this out because this is the statement that I always make is you know you look at something like minimum wage or UBI, the government is using the only tool they have from a you know go, like that the people will perceive, which is spending money, mm-hmm. right? They're a right. hammer. They got one. They got one tool and they just keep using it. Correct. And and you know your book with regards to those five categories that I mentioned, you really walk through some of the causes of increasing costs to the poor. And um, maybe this is a good time to sort of transition to the automation section of your book, because um, maybe you can speak to both automation as well as what would we normally expect to see in the cost of things over time? Should we That's see- That's such a great way, yeah. The increased cost um, to- the poor or or sorry for the most basic things in society which is going to affect the poor the most should we see those things rising in cost over time um and and then you know automation is sort of the the ultimate fear yeah whereas uh, actually you know if people are worried about people being poor then automation should be lauded because what's happened with automation so far is that things that used to be cr- 
expensive and could only be bought by rich people are available to everyone <laughs> because the automation of the production process means that those things can be produced for cheap. So if we look at, I've got some facts on this in the book, but I don't remember them off by heart. Um, between 1870 and 1929, the average hour, number of hours a person worked declined from 61 hours per week to 48 hours. And by 1970, the number had fallen to 42. So, okay, that's a little bit more, but it was already slowing down. And the thing is, what, like, that's, that was all achieved by automation, largely. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you listen to crazy left-wingers that don't understand economics, they'll say, oh, it was unions and things like that. But that doesn't make any sense because... Being in a union does not increase the production, sorry, the marginal productivity, to use the technical term, of labour. So if you're in a union, if people are getting underpaid, it might make sure that they're getting the market rate for their labour. Or they could get slightly, or they could get more than the market rate, but some of them would have to lose their jobs probably, but it can't increase their productivity. So it can't help them make more than they're cap- you know, more than they are capable of producing. I think, I think this is a really important point because so many people see, you know, in a, like the, the long-term effect as the result of increasing wages, right. but not identifying what's the cause of the increasing in wage. And, and you're right. sort of touching on that, which is because my labors become more productive, I become compensated more. Right. Correct. And because, you know, there is a market for wages, otherwise everyone would just be getting paid one cent an hour or whatever the minimum wage is, you know, uh, employers bid up the price of labor. And if the production process is advanced, they can afford to pay people more. Um, In addition to that, it should be, that your wage is worth more. I mean, even if you gain, even if your wage stayed the same on a free market, because think about it. I mean, the laptop that you're probably recording on, one of the same specs 10 years ago would have been way more expensive. It's because Mm -hmm. some like idiots come in and buy it on the first day it comes out. Uh, No offense to anyone who loves the newest thing. I I love you really, because you're the reason I can afford it. Yeah, you're the reason I can afford it. You're the reason we can afford it. You plow the money into it, and then um, the technology comes down in price. So this is like one of the major things, probably in Canada as well, definitely in America, and maybe to the same degree in uh, the UK as in Canada, roughly, soaring prices of healthcare. Uh, costs, I should say, because there's no prices for URI. Um, mm-hmm. because it's socialized but it's still going up in cost and that that doesn't make sense because some people will say well you know the new te- medical technology is so expensive um, so cutting edge it takes so much technology and it's like yeah well then well then that's all the more reason why it should be plummeting because usually in sectors which are left to the market um, that are technology heavy uh, apart from the fact that most of these high-tech treatments don't actually work or extend people's lives by very much. Do you know what? And yeah. I mean, you're laughing, but it's true, but it's oh. sad because they're spending billions or trillions of dollars 
on technology that's meant to cure or, or treat chronic conditions that and, and you know maybe adds a few days to people's lives while they're spending stupid t- amounts of money in it because the, the my point is this reduces people's standard of living because that's being spent on these health like you know actually most of the, the problem is people are eating crap food uh, you know not that they don't not that they for for decades so not the fact that they need a, a high-tech solution but the thing is it needs to be paid for so it comes out of the people's taxes in countries like yours and mine and then in america to a degree out of people's taxes and also out of their paycheck for their you know mandatory insurance payments or the 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 benefits and kinds which they get sorry i apologize because i talked across to you when you were going to clarify uh when i said you were laughing because oh. <laughs> it it was worth no i mean it's funny no i mean, I mean it's it's funny and how and how like ridiculous it is i understand that i didn't think you were being insensitive no no you're, you're absolutely right i'm laughing because i think it was a few episodes ago i mentioned um so i'm a I, accountant in canada we have a magazine about five years ago there was a woman who was like specializing in implementing technologies to our hospitals and and the reason is because they don't have the profit signals they don't have the incentives to drive putting these things in place until someone comes along and says the central planners decided this would be beneficial and and that's where you know i'm laughing because we have a lack of technology in, uh, on healthcare as a whole, if anything, the healthcare industry is lagging. And I mean, you could make the same play- case for, for education, that there's a, a lagging of implementing mm. technology to make it innovative mm. and, and more cost effective. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's to me, whenever we see these conversations, we see these issues, let's, yeah. there's, there's no comprehensive conversation about what are the cause right. and effect? What is the costs What's that are rising cause? and, and why? People are working downstream instead of upstream, right? You know, I don't know. I mean, if you've got a flood, you might need to work downstream, but at the same time, you need to go up and fix the dike or whatever it is, you know, whatever measures are supposed to make this stupid thing from happening. It's like someone going to the doctor overweight and uh, getting diet pills instead of him saying, well, you know, right, why don't we always add something? We always need to add something, add something on top of that, add something on top of that. And uh, actually, a lot of the time, it's not what you add, it's what you take away. So, I mean, this is a whole freaking tangent, but if you actually see, if there was something in alternative medicine that had the results that chemo did, the doctors would be saying those people are cranks and they're harming people <laughs> and they're just profiteering over the, off the misery of others. If it wasn't in mainstream medicine, it wouldn't be considered acceptable and the people responsible would be arrested. And there's, there's tons of treatments that they make tons of money from, like, you know... Um, well, let's talk about your industry, SSRIs. Right. With well, I, I mean, I don't. That that's fair enough. I I don't I don't consider psychiatry to be my industry. Well, but I guess sorry. if you say adjacent um, mental health. A... Well, I mean, I guess I suppose so. It's all mental health. Yeah, that's fine. And the and the trials for Prozac, I believe, they didn't include the people who dropped out of the trial because their side effects were 
too severe. And they still prescribe Prozac. I mean, that's not science. I don't consider psychiatry to be a science. There's nothing that you can um, point to in someone's head and go, oh, there's your schizophrenia right there. You know, these conditions are arrived at by consensus. Um, and that doesn't mean that a diagnosis is never helpful or psychiatric drugs are never helpful as a backstop but they're just basically saying right here take these and you're bound you you know sorry that's all we can do is like fuck, fuck, fuck around with your hormones you're going to get worse and worse your digestion is going to get worse your immune systems are going to get worse because serotonin is used in both of those as well as and your as to regulate your happiness but that's just life you know that is not and and they're and they're given huge inflated salaries and this um you know, I, I don't even know how to put it this uh, like, oh, being a psychiatrist um, is, is like considered to be a prestigious position because you're a doctor. And I mean, I've had so many clients come to me that have been mistreated by mental health professionals and psychiatrists are the worst. Mm. Patronizing, um, unfeeling. Un uncaring, unempathetic, treating you like just a number. I'm not saying all psychiatrists are like this, but I'm just saying from the stories that I've heard, people have been treated the worst by psychiatrists. Uh, I had a client say, um, this might have been in the 90s or something like that. They had a psychiatrist, they told their psychiatrist that their partner was um, physical, physically harming them. And the psychiatrist picked up the phone and phoned their partner to check out to find out if the story was true. They're abuser, right? Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I know. What the fuck? I'm not sure that would still happen today, but the fact that it happened ever is shocking, appalling. Um, I, I, I've, I've had other horrible stories from psychiatrists, uh, especially about psychiatrists that don't spring to mind at the moment this turned out to be this is turning out to be quite a patchwork show itself <laughs> well yeah, i no, mean look no. the all, all, people on alternative medicine weren't giving women home hormone replacement therapy for decades before they realized that it wasn't uh, effective and uh, put them at a huge risk of other conditions right they weren't uh, they didn't like you know, remove women's breasts before they decided that that was usually unnecessary and ineffective and just removing the lump would be just as effective. It's like nothing like that's ever happened. The, but, the, but the thing is, they get huge sums of money that no one would pay over the counter for these mm. kinds of treatments. Um, because the insurance or the government is paying, these quack treatments, like... Uh, uh, are perpetuated and it's like no one calls it quackery right no one calls it quackery but that's what it is later. yeah yeah because it's mainstream medicine so therefore it's scientific yeah if you believe that i've got some property by the seaside here in mexico i'm happy to give you a timeshare sell you a timeshare in <laughs> oh you're 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 mexico that's correct okay 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 all right is wondering okay yeah so uh now in canada right so we we have a new bill um well relatively new uh calls bill c273 and the idea is um it, it's it's more geared on uh guaranteed basic income 
mm. um, as opposed to because we've been talking about UBI, universal basic income. Um, but Bill C two seven three is guaranteed basic income. So, so the difference is um, the universal basic income is uh, a means that everyone in a society, rich or poor, gets a monthly check for the same amount at the end of the year. The government uses the tax system to balance out the scales and recoup the extra cash from the higher income earners who didn't end up needing it. Now, for the for the GBI, the guaranteed basic income, they say it's for his bill C C two seven three is um is the system guaranteed basic income is the system most people are referring to when they talk about basic income in Canada. It is an income contingent system, meaning monthly payments only go to families and individuals with lower income. Provokes the question, are people going to stay at lower incomes so that they can continue to get their checks from the government if they think that it'll be more work or more cycle? Maybe it won't be. Maybe they'll enjoy the the better paid position better but um getting over the psychological hump is is uh, difficult or something like that is there a reason why they wouldn't are you are you saying like um there's a reason they wouldn't i'm 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 asking if there's a reason why p- people wouldn't become in some cases less ambitious because they're going to be trading working for money for actually getting the handout Mm. Like well, the well, I, welfare clip. Yeah, like that. Well, the idea is, I guess, comparing UBI or guaranteed basic income to welfare. Um, mm-hmm. Welfare is that there's strings attached. Right. Right. Um, so you, you can only get it if, uh, you know, you're a single mom, no, no man in the home. Um, you make under a certain amount. Um, if you go over a certain amount, then you're no longer on welfare, and then you're kind of like living from check to check. So, but with I guess what they're saying is with with a guaranteed basic income, um, no strings attached, and so you can go out and work. I guess correct me if I'm wrong. You can go out. You can still go out and work, um, but you're but you're right. still going to be able to get that check because everybody's getting that check. All right. If it's UBI, then everyone's getting that check. Yeah. Um, I thought you were saying this was like a means test, like uh, Milton Friedman's idea of the um, negative income tax. Negative negative income tax. Is that is, is that, that cause what it, is? Is that what it is? Because that's what I was trying to think about the um, the guarantee. It sounds like it. I mean, I'd have to look at it, but it sounds like it's something like the negative income tax, which is if. You you earn under a certain amount, you get a handout as a top up, but it's relative to how much you're earning. So if you're earning a lot less, you get a bigger handout as a top up. And if you're earning a little bit less, then you get a smaller top up. Yeah, to, to, to give a little bit of context, the bill that Darnell's referring to is, is sort of convoluted. It's like, so it, it, the bill he's referring to technically got sort of paused. A government to... proposal is convoluted. Yeah, I know. Eh? What I can't believe that. I can't <laughs> believe that. So come on, um, tell me something credible. <laughs> this bill was sort of going through getting a, approved, let's say during 2021, but then we had an election called, so it's sort of in a restart phase um, because of the new, you know, essentially the new parliament. 
But the way that I understood this bill originally was like, they're, they're, the government was tasked to create the program within two years and then implement within two more years. So, so what Darnell's talking about is they're like the means tested, all that kind of stuff is sort of left out just yet until they get the bill approved to then for the government to create all of that nuance. Um, I think uh, with regards to the, the, the idea here of sort of finding a guaranteed base kingdom would use some, let's use like an excessive threshold. So anyone making over $50,000 doesn't qualify or, you know, and then, or once you make over 50, it sort of is a tailored program to, to remove the, sorry, tailored as in like, you know, you make an extra two grand, you lose a grand. You make another two grand, you lose a grand, right? So it's it's trying to remove the welfare cliff piece would be one of the ways that they could build sort of a you non not UBI but a, 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 a sort of a guaranteed basic income while trying to remove some of the welfare cliff. That that's the way I've understood it. Um, but as I said, it's sort of a bill that's designed for the government to be approved to create the program, which is sort of mm. ridiculous. But well, I mean. Yeah, I mean, the welfare cliffs are a problem if you're going to have a welfare state. I mean, you don't want to be in a position where people are deterred from working more because, you know, in, in the UK, we'd call it a poverty trap because they're in the poverty trap where if they earn more, they take away. Like, like we have one, which is, I think we still have it. I, I, they might have closed it, but I don't, I, I don't count on it. Um where if you were disabled or something like that or uh, there was a bunch of other conditions as well you were allowed to work 16 hours but if you worked more than 16 hours you lost a whole ton of benefits all at once um i don't think they've closed it i think probably that's the kind of thing i mean and that's like egregious like i i, I met a person that was telling me they'd like to work more when I first heard about this, maybe I was 20 at the time, but they couldn't because it was just unmanageable for them to take on more hours. So the idea is of having a graded system where you lose your benefits gradually rather than falling off the welfare cliff or having the rug pulled out from underneath you is probably a good idea. <laughs> the question is, how do you do that? I mean... Mm -hmm. Yeah, clearly well, the current what, programs weren't designed to have a welfare cliff. Like that wasn't the intention. These are unintended consequences as opposed to, hmm. you know, the intentions. Well, well you, never know. <laughs> you never know. You never know. There's a lot of right. benefit. Okay, let's say <clears throat> let's say it might not have been designed that way deliberately to keep people in poverty, but the right. incentives that government have align tend to right, okay. Every system tends to produce the kind of results that it's incentivized to, you know. Mm -hmm. That's because sailing a ship directly into the wind is not very easy to do. So even if it wasn't deliberate, governments stand to gain from having a lot of people on welfare. Those people are always going to vote a certain way. Um, they're going to be marginal supporters of the state. They're not going to um, they're going to attack anyone who has ideas about freedom and say, you know, reducing your freedom's reliance. my poverty. Yeah, exactly. Or reducing government reliance. And, um, you know, they're going to, uh, some of them are going to go in the army 
uh, there's more crime, so more policing. There's, uh, you know, they can't afford services like healthcare and education. So the so people will go. Well, what about all the people in poverty in this country? We need the government to provide schools and hospitals and 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 whatever else. So even if it wasn't designed that way deliberately, probably wasn't. Government has an incentive to produce a welfare system that has poverty traps. Mm. So I guess, like when I think about um, the um, guaranteed basic income, like would would you say like what, what what do you think about the idea of it hurting those who are not responsible? So for those who are responsible, like this is a this this conversation is irrelevant because they're making their money and they're growing their business and so forth. But um, you know, in the I guess this is a politically incorrect thing to say, but you know, some people are poor because of bad decisions they've made right. and they're continuing to make. But, you know, that old that uh economic concept of if you incentivize bad behavior, you'll get mm. more bad behavior. So do you think that um it's hurting those UBI is hurting those who are not responsible? It could. I mean, it's like uh, there's, there's people who are maybe addicted to drugs or alcohol or video games or anything. If you give them a basic income, they're not going to use it to start a business. They're going to use it to, it's going to be enabling to them. And um, it's going to make their life's worth Worse, I say in the book, it's going to make their deaths worse. Um, and then, I mean, even for the people who do want to start a business or whatever, like, when you know you're, it's always coming, oh, oh, I'm going to, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be ambitious and start this business, but just not this month because we've got a bunch of things to take care of. I'll, I'll use my my UBI to buy those supplies next month, <laughs> you know, um, there's no urgency. It, it, it corrupts what money means to give everyone a universal basic income, which is meant to be a token that represents labor. Well, someone you've done some, someone's done something at some point and we're going to shape, shape, trade these tokens for the products of what people have done. Right. So it's it's a weird idea. I mean, it's it's weird whether I mean to think whether people will still continue to use a currency that is made universally available. I don't know. Mm. You know, at some point they might for a while. If if it's so generous, at some point, if if government is the origin of money, then there is no market economy anymore. Really, I mean. Yeah, you could work for more tokens, but it's like who who's going to be interested in in having them when they're not actually related to labor? Now, I I think money is an interesting topic. I think a lot of people don't understand it. Um, I've sort of been saying it's pres- preservation of of purchasing power, but why? I'm wondering why why you chose why do you cho- like in your in your book you do this as well as, you know, you just mentioned it now, why do you associate it with labor? Like, what's the, is there a, a reason that you use labor? Um, what's the, what's the impetus mm. there for, for <laughs> that sounds that quite, that sounds kind of like, uh, Hitler, uh, he had, uh, 
he 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 removed the central banks and created like Reichmarks, which were not backed by gold or something like that, but were meant to be backed by human labor. I don't think that was a very good idea, um, <laughs> because good call. Um, yeah, I, 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 well, it was, it was probably better than it was better than the economic policies of some countries that that were contemporary. That's for sure. Um, but I don't. But I think it's probably better to let people trade in whatever currency they want. What I mean is, well, I mean when you when you get paid by your employer, that's a that's a value. That's sorry. That is relative to. It might not be exactly because there's no for one because there's no exact and two. You know, real life is messy. It's not just a chart on a page. It might just be that you've not had the courage to ask for a raise, but he'd actually give you one if you asked for one. But, I mean, it's relative to the value of your labor. He can't pay you much less than other people are paying you for the kind of labor that you're doing. And that depends on supply and demand, you know. Um, people with certain skills are, always go are, are not in the position of having to go to the job market to ask around who's going to employ me, but they get solicited by companies. They get emails in their inbox saying, could you come code for us or whatever they're famous for, they're famously good at. You know, no, so it's a market. They get headhunted. So that's because their skills are extremely valuable and if they're extremely valuable then people are going to pay a large amount of money from it, for it and if they're not very valuable then that's because either because too many people are doing that or can do it and that is a signal to, to tell people go and go and train in something go and learn a skill that people want more that's in demand. So that's why we've got that worry about the UBI, you know, that's sometimes satirized as everyone's just going to sit at home and write their crap poetry and then go out and mm -hmm. to a poetry reading, you know, at some local hippie cafe that mm -hmm. wouldn't exist if, because they don't serve enough people. Maybe 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 where that cafe should be, where that maybe that where that cafe is, that's only profitable because the four owners are putting their are putting their UBI into it. Maybe there's something more valuable that could be done with that space, you know, than like put up Dada art and uh, play um, John Cage or you know uh, <laughs> whatever. I know I'm going, I'm showing my age here. Whoever's Whoever is uh, considered to be like crappy postmodern music these days, <laughs> and uh, you know the the place is the the place is always practically empty. There's only six people in there. Like, you know, mm. it, why isn't it going bankrupt? It, yeah, well, because they're 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 plowing their universal basic income into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, you know what? One I was going to say that part yeah. of your book where you really hash this idea out. Um, you know, I thought was really, really useful. Um, and, and really, the, the argument isn't necessarily, if I'm understanding it correctly, the argument isn't necessarily that nobody should, should you know, pursue these type of passions and dreams. But I think the way that I understood your argument was that more people will do this than, let's say, 
should or can afford to. And such then, well, if most of these goods, arguably for the person who's not a very good musician, is is not producing a good, valuable to society as a whole. And so in order for them to maintain doing that, those that do produce goods that are valuable, so let's say food as an example, um, they're going to have to work harder to make up for the person who's not producing a good, valuable. That's very well paraphrased. So those people who are doing the heavy lifting, as I put it, the all the stuff that's considered of value on the market need to admit lower living standards to pay taxes to fund the um, crappy poetry. So it's like, it's fine if you want to write crap poetry, do it all day, all weekends. Enjoy. That's your hobby. Expecting other people who are, I don't know, on a building site or whatever to pay higher taxes so that you can sit in, at home and do it is outrageous. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, I think many people don't perceive it that way. Um, they sort of look at the aggregate benefit and go, well, somebody like we have a, we have a website from a, a Canadian organization. Um, I think it's called, uh, let me, I think it's UBI works, but, um, yeah, UBI works.ca. And, and, you know, they make all these accusations about, oh, it's going to increase economy by $40 billion a year. It's going to add 287,000 jobs, right? right. There's all these like, yeah. accu- you know, oh, this is all it's the crazy. benefits that it's going to create. And, and my, my assumption, and I'd have to dig a little bit deeper, would be that this is all based on the intended consequences, ignore some of the unintended consequences and the disincentives that are created. Um, but, for, yeah, for and it's so silly to say anything or oh, this. I mean, they always talk about the government creates jobs. This is like so silly and was absolutely skewered to death by Bastia in 1949 in his essay, The Seen and the Unseen, and people still don't get it. Right, okay, if you take a dollar from everyone to build a bridge, you can see the bridge. But what about the fact all the other stuff that people would have bought when you aggregate it? up with their dollars right you can't see that so it's like how many how much does how many jobs does the government need to destroy in order to create twenty five thousand jobs it's like a death by a thousand cuts or we're just going to distribute the effect like i've not read this book but I, i met david friedman uh the son of milton friedman at Porkfest last year, and he says he has a novel where he illustrates this because there's magic exists in this fantasy universe, but it's very weak and it can't <laughs> do much. But someone finds a way to aggregate the magic so that they can, you know, do a great big spell, and uh, they think they're so they're they're gonna they're they're so great. But um, because of this, you know, the little witch in the village can't you know heal someone that comes in and you know all the all all the significance of all the little magic is missed the significance of all the little magic on the market is missed Mm. that's an interesting analogy to tell sort of the story and Hmm. and so you're saying it's uh david friedman's book or he yeah it's david friedman yeah david friedman has a novel has a novel has a few novels, has written a few novels, and that's one of them, one of them. 
That's that's it's unaudible. I can't I'll have, remember the does, title. I'll have to check it out. I, it sounds like he's using you know novels to convey these economic principles. Maybe subtle. That's yeah, it helpful. Does sound like that. Yeah, that's helpful. yeah, and it's a good analogy. So I think that in order to create jobs, you need to destroy jobs basically because you make people poor by taxing them. They've got less money to spend, and wherever they're spend, wherever they would have spent it, that they're not going to spend it as someone's livelihood. Mm. Yeah, I, I always, I always word it as you know the government's reallocating resources. So how do you create jobs by doing just a reallocation? That's a good way to put it. So um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, if we want to contextualize a little bit to, you know, 2020, 2021 with, with, you know, COVID and all the craziness that that's entailed, you know, I've heard some people make the claim that, that COVID, COVID has exasperated, let's say, the, the arguments for UBI. It's we know that it's exasperated, you know, uh, inequality. And as we've mentioned before, we should ask, well, what's the cause and effect relationship and address that. But, but parking that, um, I'm wondering... You know, if you can maybe speak to um, sort of this in two ways. One, do you think those there's some you know validity there that that the arguments for UBI have been exasperated, or and then also you know from a coaching uh, mental health perspective, um, what have you seen you know during the last little while uh, with regards to clientele and 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 your you know work. Well, I mean, I haven't really come any had anyone come to me and say COVID's made me really lonely, and I need, uh, you know, lockdowns have made me really lonely. So I wouldn't say that I have any particular insight. I just keep on hearing stories from people of isolation or someone they know that was isolated and it affect them their mel mel mental health very badly. But okay, so if someone's going to come along to me and say. Well, look, COVID just exacerbates the argument for UBI. I'd say no, it, it exacerbates the argument for all the other stuff. I mean, look how expensive. I mean, look how expensive things are in the shops. This may come to a shock to a lot of people. But if you want to have stuff, you actually need to produce stuff, right? <laughs> so, so shutting down the economy and not letting people produce is going to be creating poverty. I mean, think about it. Let's come back to the thing that you asked me before about why do you relate the value of labor to mo the value the value of money to the to labor? Well, look at it this way. Okay, if there are um, was it there, there's a there's a I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, Harley Harley Davidson's right. They when they sold out. They found out they could charge a lot more bikes um for bikes if they were scarce. So they they just and they didn't do it on purpose. It's just the, the demand for one of their bikes was so high that they ran out. And they got, oh right, well we're really on to something here. So what they did was they made sure that everyone that wanted a bike would have to wait for them. And mm -hmm. that increased the psychological value of it. So if there's less of something it's worth more. If mm -hmm. you produce less stuff, the stuff you produce is worth more, and therefore it's going to cost more. So that's how I would explain it better. Similarly, if you pay people not to work, there's less labor. The people who, um, so there's less stuff. Like the 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 price of the stuff's going to go up. 
so so that that if anything it's an argument for all the other stuff like if it was bad before that we're not allowed to in, um, import produce from certain countries because of tariffs and bans and oh what if the farmers that live here go out of business and all that stuff it's more important than ever that we reduce trade barriers and tariffs and establish free trade now when people are more impoverished so that they can get access to cheap goods and obviously that has the beneficial knock-on effect of like um, increasing living standards in those poor countries that are going to sell us the stuff as well you know shovel the money over there where it's really needed where people are really suffering one of the things that amazes me well it doesn't really amaze me because people's capacity for irrationality is extreme but a lot of people who are very say against immigration are also very against free trade and it's like well see if you want less immigration a really great way to do that is to help third world countries get rich because then there won't be so many people coming over here and free trade is so mutually beneficial that it's you know it's one of the ways that we would that we would be able to do that so yeah i mean it's more of an argument for deregulation if it was bad before that you can't braid hair without getting a license in your state which is the truth in many states then it's more important now when people are poor and there's not many as many jobs to go around that you get rid of all these occupational licensing if you know businesses were working on a low margin and they couldn't afford the actuaries and the lawyers and accountants and um the tax money to pay the regulator in order to make sure that everything was on the book and they were complying with all the regulations that it's even more important to deregulate now when people don't have the extra money lying around to fund or the luxury of these um professionals so it's not it, it may look to the general public that because that this is more of a time for ubi than ever but it's only because they're just as economically ignorant as they were when i wrote the book <laughs> obviously i've not sold enough copies so <laughs> if, it, if anything you know as, as again as you said it's like every problem looks like a nail the only thing we know how to do is tax and spend the only thing we know how to do is regulate get rid of the regulations and let people get wealthy mm -hmm. yeah i i know that when covid first hit i probably tweeted something or, or facebook posted something like oh it seems like regulations are a luxury because they mm -hmm. were just you know in order to respond to this mm -hmm. crisis government was you know oh we we waived that regulation or we waived this regulation or you know we're not apply we're not enforcing this one um i do recall like so um, I definitely, you know, see that the regulations, the government find when when it's convenient to them, they'll they'll move them out of the way, and and I think actually that sort of ties into something that you touch on quite a bit in your book, um, which is public choice theory, and I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could maybe give our listeners um, some insight into what exactly does that teach, um, and and how that can help them. Yeah, I think it helps understand the world because what um, there was a lot of economists were coming up with these uh, market failures um, 
you know, which is the idea that in some situations, what everyone would like, what what would be in everyone's interest is not and is not produced on the market because everyone's following their narrow self interest and they've not managed to like band all together to see that this potential solution is better um, and and someone came along and said and that was like looking at the incentives that exist in the market and someone came along and said well what about the incentives that government faces i mean they're not just like sitting down to create a policy based on objective details that's never going to fail like people if, if people in the market are following their self-interest and so are politicians so they're going to pursue policies that they think are going to get them re-elected they're going to and and like there's and they just talk about the incentives that government faces so if we come back to something like you know why the hell is there subs subsidies on harmful substances like sugar or like this high fructose corn syrup in the usa like I, th I thought the government, even from a mainstream perspective, is meant to be helping us improve our health, not subsidizing something that's harmful. Well, I mean, the people who are getting the money, their life depends on it. Whereas the people who lose the money, how much does their contribution to the subsidy really amount to? A few cents a year, maybe? So they're not really going to be motivated to put all their time and energy into overturning agricultural subsidies. But if a, if a group comes along and says, you know, we're losing X hundreds of millions a year because of these stupid subsidies, where, where, how are they going to raise the funds to lobby and influence the government to rescind those kinds of policies. I mean, no one's going to pay a lot of money into that to receive very little return. Whereas, so it's kind of like the same principle as the market failure. On the other hand, those are receiving the benefits. So the, the, the benefits are concentrated, but the costs are diffuse. And people don't realize that they're sort of dying a death of a million cuts. They don't realize how much richer they would be overall if all of these ridiculous things that they're subsidizing, okay, maybe each particular thing on its own doesn't amount to much, but when you add it all up, it adds up to a significant decrease in people's standards of living. Well, try and fight that, you know, try and get a lobbying group together to get the government to leave you alone, <laughs> to get the government to um, rescind all subsidies. Everyone who's got a subsidy is going to throw every penny they have uh, behind making sure that this bill gets shot down. So that's an example of public choice theory. Like, you know, it was able to point out that these incentives, it just, just, you, just looking at it, look at what the incentives, you, you look at what you would expect to get. And a lot of the time we find we get exactly what you would expect to get. Mm -hmm. given the incentives of government well and i think that aligns with um let's say in your book the the long-term concern that you have towards mm. ubi um you know sort of even if it replaced all government programs if it 
you know, there's going to be this constant trend by the politician to say, that guy's giving you, you know, 15,000, I'm going to give you 16,000. It's just constantly a, an opportunity to garner more votes. Um, you know, how, how would we, like, is, would public choice theory essentially lead us to believe there's no reason that this program would be restrained from growing out of control? Well, that's the thing. I mean, people say, well, what if you can get the UBI and get rid of the minimum wage and get rid of labor laws because they won't be needed anymore because if your, your employer's abusive, you just go across the road and get another job because you've got the UBI and um, you don't mind walking out, et cetera, et cetera. What if we could get rid of all of these things? And one thing is good, if, good luck with that, right? You know, even I hear leftists say, oh, we need to be careful because with the UBI, maybe it'll undermine the minimum wage and stuff like that. The only way it would be worth doing is if you could get rid of all that stuff. But the thing is, I'm skeptical as to whether if you get rid, if you, even if you did replace all the stuff, like a lot of people say UBI is going to be in addition to some of the benefits because there's no way you're going to get some of them rescinded. I yeah. see no reason why it's going to stay that way because there's always going to be the incentive there for people to profit by force at the expense of others. And until we have a philosophical change in the way we look at things, um, I don't know. I'm not that hopeful. It's mm -hmm. a little bit sketchy as to whether anything is not going to just spiral out of control. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, it's sort of the standard socialist critique of it's sort of a race to the bottom. Um, UBI mm -hmm. would, would arguably be a new method to attempt that. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I guess, you know, a good question maybe to, to finish on based on your um, involvement with UBI, digging into UBI, and what would you do if you were in a country where it got passed? Like, how would you respond? Um, maybe your long-term responses move as quickly as possible, um, but what would maybe be some short-term and long-term responses to such? Uh, I'd pick up the check. <laughs> well, and well, what, what do you what do you mean? What do you mean by that? He'll take his money. Yeah, I'll take my money. No, I, I, oh. I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of like not because it's it's a funny thing because you go, well, look. If someone can be so, if even someone who's ideologically, I, I use this because, you know, the other day someone, I posted something about Ayn Rand and someone posted, oh, Ayn Rand, social Darwinism for you, social security for me. And first of all, I know it's a myth that Ayn Rand picked up social security. Secondly, even if she did, so fucking what, she paid a lot of taxes and she's just taking her money back. Um... And third, and and then I'll get on to fourth. Third, it doesn't debunk any of our arguments, even if it was true. And fourth, like, if it was true, there you go, right? That's the corrupting influence of government. Even someone as dogmatic as Anne Rand's going to pick up her, even someone so ideologically against it as Anne Rand is going to pick up her welfare check, then you've just proved our point that government handouts are corrupting influence on man's nature. So anyway, I don't reply to people like that on Twitter. It's a waste of time. And I wish 
I wish other people would stop replying to them as well. Don't waste your time. Like, we've got serious problems here. Like, everyone needs to be, like, focusing their energy on doing something effective, not, um, like, spilling it all away. So, um, but yeah, so, so I don't know really what I do. I mean, I've been traveling for the last 15 months. So I, I mean, I don't, I don't know when, when exactly I'm going back to Scotland, if ever. I'm sure I will go back, but, um, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if, if they were, if they were issuing UBI there in Scotland. Yeah. I mean, I'd pick it up the same as any, anyone else, maybe put it in crypto or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I just continue to do the work that I'm doing, trying to spread liberty and, um, help people with whatever, you know, sit down, write my books, mm. see my clients, the same as I always do. I don't think it would have mm -hmm. that much of an effect on me one way or another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it might, if the society comes crashing down as a consequence of it, then it will have a major effect on me. But in the meantime... Well, and that's where, you know, putting your, your UBI check into crypto or let's say, you know, monetary alternatives um, sort of gives you the ability to opt out slash prepare in the event that it does come crashing down, you've sort of pulled some mm. stuff out of the system that, that crashed or, or that was hindered by the project. You know, I, right. I, I was, sort of, I did say that that was sort of my last question, but I thought, you know, there might be something else you, you've, uh, you've been traveling the U S during COVID you're in, you've mentioned that you're in Mexico now. Um, I mean, all of our listeners got hope. I think they got to hear a little bit of your neighbors in the background. Um, mm. I'm wondering, you know, can you maybe speak to what it's like? I'm assuming you're still working remotely. Um, you know, Canada is not quite at the level of Australia, but some of us have some fears that that maybe moving or or getting out of this place might be necessary. So, the the remote yeah, working. There's tons of expats from Canada here. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to what was that like? You know, what was your the level of travel involved, and how do you sort of maintain working? You know, doing Whoa. your job while all that. Yeah, I mean, it's fluctuated greatly. Um, well, I was already mostly working online before COVID. I had some clients I saw in person, but not many. Almost everyone was online. So, yeah, I just, when I packed up, I mean, I try and get somewhere where I can sit and I can focus and see a couple of people a day, do a little bit of writing every day, do some yoga. Like, but it's very hard when you're on the road. Like, thankfully, I've been here for about five, six weeks. But yeah, I mean, May of last year, I, I did eight states that month because I had a lot of speaking appointments. Um, and I, that's too much. You can't do that all the time. It's too tired, tiring. It would be okay, maybe, if I had a home anywhere close to go back to mm. and I could, like, go to an appointment, then go back home, then... <coughs> but staying in <coughs> excuse me staying in spare rooms airbnbs hotels sometimes people's couches even in some cases it's like um it's very tiring it takes a toll on you so i probably work less and i was spending more so 
that's not a good business proposition long term. (laughs) It's nice when you can have some. It's nice when you can have some time to just sit. But I had a feeling that this was a very important and special time in my life. And if I had to make sacrifices in some areas, then it wasn't going to be forever. I mean, it ended up lasting a lot more than I thought, a lot longer than I thought it would. I had no idea I'd still be away now. But, right. you know, on the other hand, Scotland doesn't seem that appealing, especially not in the winter. I mean, I've got the sun coming into my window and it's the 13th nice. of January, you know. Nice. While we speak, the sun's coming in the window. I not mine. Went down to the beach. Yeah, I went down to the beach yesterday. In the morning, I, I took my mat down to the park and I found a corner and I, I did some stretching and stuff and it's, it was warm. I mean, I'd be freezing my balls off in Scotland. <laughs> or in so, Toronto. Do it, doing your Toronto. yoga at the, at the water. <laughs> so no thanks. I think, I'm, I think I'll, um, I'll give it another couple of months for the climate to change. <laughs> Triggered. <laughs> And uh, when when things are a little bit more, I might I might flee. Who knows? I'm going. I'm following my nose. I'm going where the op- opportunities are. Mm-hmm. Right. I I stayed here for a long time because I needed a rest. It's too much excitement, too much travel. Like it's fatiguing. But here it's nice. It's not too expensive. I mean, it's reason. It's very reasonable, rather, and. and uh, I can work. The weather's nice. If I want to do something good for myself, like go and get a green smoothie, they'll they'll make me one for a couple of bucks. I don't have to do it myself. <laughs> uh, stay hydrated. Get the chlorophyll particles or whatever into your cells. <laughs> <laughs> Breathe deep. It's a good life. Mm-hmm. I'm moving on soon as well. I'm going to Bogota in Colombia. Okay. Do you think you'll be doing so, like a sort of like six week stays there as well, sort of big chunks of time? About four weeks or so. I've got a conference coming up, so I will be back in the US of A in March. And while I'm there, I might go and see some friends and things like that and have another crazy month with <laughs> too much travel. But after that, I mean to settle down. I mean, quite a bit. I, I think probably after that trip. It might be time to give my mum a hug. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. I'm sure she's uh, probably Zoom called out and and does look for some, you know, present being in in the same room, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, she's not seen me in in person in fifteen months. None of my family have. None of my best friends in Scotland have. I mean, I'm lucky because I made lots of friends along the way. But it's sad as well. I mean, I feel like I just, uh, just before I left, I uh, got my full house. Like, you know, it takes quite a long time to fill up a, a roster of really good friends. And uh, I felt like I, I, I had a great, great, great friends and things like that. So I guess, um, but when the time's right, the time's right. Who knows what's going to happen? The, it's completely impossible to predict or to plan for the future under these circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm just doing, you know, what I can each day, working with my people, trying to help them, writing stuff that I think's interesting or it's going to help people, and just uh, keeping my head down. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So, um, for for our listener who uh, you know 
likes a lot of what you've had to say, wants to hear more from you, what uh, what would be the way to either get in contact with you or, or find your content? Yeah, I'm easy to, to find on Twitter or Facebook, Anthony Samaroff. I'm responsible for two podcasts. The, if you like this, the political stuff, Scottish Liberty podcast. If you're more into personal development, check out Be Yourself and Love It podcast. Uh, there's almost 100 episodes, but some of them are just 10 or 15 minutes long. And they're all like self-help and very um, practical. Not too much waffling and philosophy. Although there's a place for that. Lots of like what you can do in this situation to get better results. A, B, C, D. Mm. Try it yeah. at home. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also, uh, where, where can our listeners find your book? Yeah, I mean, the best place is Amazon. Um, I, I, I can't sign them and send them out at the moment, especially not from Mexico. It's so laborious. And the shit that you need to do at the post office these days. This is the, this is the kind of, a, such a concrete example of how um, government regulations make it impossible for people to make money. Like, I, uh, the, I think the book's like 10 bucks um, on Amazon. Or something like that. Uh, U.S. I don't know what it's what it is at Canada, but you know, at, at events people give me twice that because they're you know they're supporting me for my transport fees and for coming out. Like <clears throat> I can't sign books and send them out because I need to for sign a form for every book saying what's in it. You know where it's we need to write out the dress again, my package it. It's like completely. It's. And it was even worse when I was staying in Scotland and I had um, people in America asking if I could sign them out, send them out a signed copy because then I need to fill the f- customs form as well. Oh my goodness. And it's like, it's so, it's, it takes ages. It takes ages. So the thing is, that's a whole bunch of people who could conceivably make a living as an author by selling far fewer books as long as their website said, I'll send you out a signed copy for insert, you know. X dollars. Yeah, no, but it's not worth it. Yeah, probably a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, yeah, like, but the thing is, some people are willing to pay it, but the government makes it laborious. And, it, you know, there, there's so many examples of this kind of thing. That's just one. My friend was working in a, was managing uh pizza hut and the regulations said they had to check the motorbikes every shift so much time and fill out a farm so much time that means that the pizzas are more expensive <laughs> yeah because time is spent because you have filling. to pay someone yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they need to pass they need to pass the they need to pass the cost onto the consumer people don't realize how rich they would be without the government that's the sad thing. And then they come along and say they need a UBI. So yeah, sad. It's it's asking the cause for your problem to give you more of the cause for your problem. Mm-hmm. And and how how well, can um listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, Facebook or Twitter is good. You can email Anthony at be yourself and love it.com, but I, I, I think you know social media is usually the way that people first get in touch okay and i'll make sure to put all that in the show notes page thank you again for your time we really appreciate it uh hopefully our listeners will will find this useful and informative yeah yeah thank you for your time anthony 
Thank you for your time. I appreciate that. That was a good show. But you heard me? Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.